Markham, Richmond Hill, Vaughan. From everywhere you are. Aurora, Newmarket, East Willemberry. This is The Feed. Georgina, King, Whitchurch, Stovall. The Feed is York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to the people that live and work here. Welcome to The Feed, I'm Ann Romer. Coming up on the show, security for seniors, access by Tay, and the growing need for skilled trades. But we begin with the crisis in nursing. Many, if not most provinces across Canada are suffering from a healthcare staffing shortage, but none more than here in Ontario. The impact is being felt right through the system from ERs to everyday patient care with no clear end in sight. Joining us to help us understand the complexities and the consequences of this critical shortage of nurses and other healthcare workers is Catherine Hoy, president of the Ontario Nurses Association. Welcome to the feed, Catherine. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's so important to get our message out to the people of Ontario. And that's what the feed is all about. So, Catherine, why is there a shortage of healthcare workers in just about every aspect of healthcare, and in particular, nurses? This has been going on for many, many, many years. Uh, you know, before, in fairness, before the Ford government, the Liberals were making cuts to the healthcare budget. And why? Because we are the most expensive line item on a provincial budget. We have been talking to the government. I can remember myself and Vicki McKenna going in to meet with Wynne and explaining health care and how terrible it was out there. And then the pandemic hit. But I think what's really important to remember is Bill 124 came in effect in November 2019, months before the pandemic. It was a bill that was targeted against a female-dominated profession. And then the pandemic rolls around. It just made our, our staffing issues in all aspects of healthcare so much worse because of fear and unknown and honestly, the disrespect they felt. You represent nurses in this province. Can you explain to us what now a typical day, and I don't like to use that word because it's a little bit loose and it's a little bit soft, but but really what a day is like for a nurse in this province, whether it is in public health or whether it is in the emergency room in a hospital anywhere in Ontario, what is a day like now for a nurse? Okay, but I just want to also point out that Ona represents other healthcare professionals, and they are suffering too. Mm -hmm. But the nursing shortage is critical. So I sat down and I, I figured out a, a perfect day, and I'm going to call it a perfect day with nothing going wrong, but I have 15 patients because there's only two nurses on the floor. In my perfect day, it would actually be 24.5 hours of labor that a nurse would have to complete in a 12-hour tour. Now, if anything went wrong, there was a cold, a fall, anything, it would just add to my day. So a typical day now, say for an ICU nurse, she could have three critically ill patients. Three should be one-on-one, -on -one, possibly one to two, but they have three critically ill patients. ER nurses, most of the departments are 50% short or even more. They are run ragged. The GTA area, they look out and they see a sea of ambulances sitting there waiting to offload their patients, but they can't 
because they can't care for the people that they have now because they have people sitting in stretchers and in chairs waiting to be admitted. Rural communities, I can think of a story that a nurse told me. She was the only nurse on the unit. She had to call down another nurse to come and help her because the trauma had come in and they were working on the trauma. And then another trauma came through the door. And if it hadn't been for EMS that was helping, they don't know what they would have done. Two nurses, two traumas. No breaks that day, no bathroom breaks, nothing. And these are their typical days. You have new graduates that do not have skill and ability to be working in departments that they're working in, trying to run codes, which they don't have the experience for. The government seems to think that because you have a heartbeat and a license, you're a nurse. But nursing is building blocks. You enter the profession and every shift you learn and you build your skill level. We talk about nurses. We talk about the importance of of their abilities and their skills and that they deserve respect. They deserve uh, more support. They deserve better salaries. They deserve everything that they're asking for right now. But let's turn it over now to the patient. What does this staffing shortage mean to the patient? Adverse outcomes, lack of care, testing that isn't done on time, medication that isn't given on time, call bells ringing for extended periods of time, families waiting for answers. I heard a story last week where a family member called in to see how their parent was doing and the nurse had to say to him, your parent died at, I believe it was 5 a.m., but I'm sorry, I didn't have time to call you. Catherine, what is the solution? Bill 124 must be repealed so that we can go back to bargaining for the last three years and bargain for the money that the nurses deserve. Uh, We hear a lot about the international nurses, and yes, we do need nurses because that is part of the problem. But if we don't have the support systems in place for that group and also our new graduates, they will not be successful because there's nobody at the front line to uh, help them and to support them. We need programs to bring back the retired nurses to support them. We need to end agency nursing or at the very least bring it down to a bare minimum. We're paying four times an RN rate for agency nurses and that money could be invested into paying nurses what they rightfully deserve to be paid. And we need to come up with a bridging program for RPNs to RNs where they're paid while they finish their education because when the College of Nurses uh, dictated that you had to be a university graduate to be a registered nurse, they did not increase the number of seats that the diploma nurse brought into the workforce. And we will never recoup our numbers till something is looked at in the education system. The graduates that are coming out now are only replacing the workforce that is retiring because our workforce right now, currently working, is 23% that are eligible to retire. 
The health minister, Sylvia Jones, uh, recently suggested that nurses' vacations are responsible for the shortage. She also said that she is meeting with organizations that have solutions and is listening to their feedback. So that's a two-part question here, but I'll end the question by saying, has she asked to meet with the Ontario Nurses Association? So vacations are not an issue. Most employers have quotas that allow one or two nurses off per shift. And if you cannot run a department with one or two nurses off a shift, then we have a bigger problem. A lot of workplaces are not even granting vacation. I have nurses that have not had a vacation in nearly three years. So that honestly was extremely disrespectful for all my nurses. I have asked for an apology over social media and I know they watch my Twitter and they have yet to receive a apology and they are owed that. They have been on that front line working six, seven days a week, 12, 16 hour shifts taking care of the people of Ontario. They went into work. They showed up when we didn't know what this pandemic was and put their own lives at risk because we didn't know what, what faced us. So I have met with her once for, I believe it was five to six minutes, and hello, my name is, and I try to ramble off a bunch of things, and um, that was it. There was zero conversation. There has been no touch point with the Ontario Nurses Association with her on working together to solve this problem. And in fact, she stated in question period when I attended that she had met with the Ontario Nurses Association and that is absolutely not true. I believe she has met with the RNAO with Doris Grinson and Doris is a organization and Doris does a great job speaking about Bill 124 but the RNAO does not represent the Ontario nurses. Ona does. And we have yet to speak to her. Um, There is a meeting now booked next week. I've been given, I believe, 45 minutes. And that's a far cry after the pleasantries to discuss the situations in healthcare. So there is a meeting scheduled for next week with the health minister. I want to ask you, it's been described and the headlines call this a crisis in healthcare. And The health minister doesn't like the use of that word when it comes to the staffing shortage. How would you describe what's going on right now with our healthcare system? Well, I'm the one that started the Titanic and it's sinking. Um, I also like to say it's a volcano that has erupted and there's black ash all over the province of Ontario because that is how bad it is. It is a crisis, it is critical, it's a disaster. It's every negative word that you could think of because it's not only the ICUs and the ERs, it's public health, it's home care, it's all the units in the hospitals. I call them silent closures because they close beds and the communities don't know about it or they change from level threes to level twos or labor and delivery has gone totally unnoticed but they closed down labor and delivery units across the province. Can you imagine showing up to have your baby 
only to find out you have to drive another hour and a half down the road. And then there's the complication on the way because that happens. That's like you need an emergency C-section, but you've got to drive an, uh, another 30 minutes down the road. Can you imagine? And this is how healthcare is representing the people of Ontario right now. It is so wrong. What will be your first words to the health minister, Sylvia Jones, when you meet with her next week? Let's book a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, all day, all night, just like we did with Directive 5. Let's sit down at the table. Let's hammer this out. Let's come up with a solution. And let's take the monies that you say you're investing into healthcare and put them into the right place. We need to retain the nurses that we have right now. And if we don't treat them right, we will not retain them. 23% can walk out the door tomorrow. They're eligible to retire. There's around another 23% that are in between the ages of 45 and 54. So percentages of those next year will be able to retire. Retrain, retain value and respect the heartbeat and the backbone of health care. And that is the nurses. And you know what? The docs will back us up on that. Catherine Hoy, President of the Ontario Nurses Association, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. Anytime, and it's honestly such an honour for you to ask to speak to us. Thank you. And thank you. Internationally trained doctors are ready to help, but qualifying is an issue here in Ontario. Tina Cortez with that story. Internationally Trained Physicians of Ontario is an organization of more than 1,200 international medical graduates. Dr. McKinney McGuire-Brown is chair and joins us next on the feed. The ITPO is a relatively new organization. How many internationally trained physicians simply don't know about your organization or the process of obtaining accreditation in Ontario? We're young. We're one year old in um, April. And... um, We've gathered like 1,500 and counting. Every day we get new members um, in national trained physicians. I don't think the problem is knowing what's required. The problem is that what's required and the the licensure pathways are just dysfunctional. So let's talk about that. What can the government do to make it easier to get accredited in the province of Ontario? So what we think is that there are so many priorities that um, will be able to drive the health system to somewhere that is a lot better than where we are right now. One of those things is increasing residency spots. So currently, there are just too few spots for the amount of applicants that they get each and every year. There can be as much as 400 internally trained physicians for two positions, and that's just a, on average. It varies by specialty um, and by university. But that is just a ridiculous ratio that it's impossible to be able to properly evaluate qualified professionals who have been working as doctors um, with those kind of ratios. And so it's really impossible to to get in. Um, It approximates impossible. Mm -hmm. And the second priority is that we believe that the PRA program should be instituted in Ontario. That's practice-ready assessment. And that is a program that acknowledges doctors who have already done residency, already have a specialist 
um, degree or have spent many years working in a particular area and allows them to get into the health system, contribute immediately under supervision until they get to full licensure. And so that is something that would be really helpful right now because you can instantly get doctors working uh, while on the pathway to, to full licensure. Um, Ontario currently does not have the practice ready assessment um, that seven other provinces have. And then the third thing that we've been pushing is a clinical assistant um, position that is official and sanctioned by the ministry and sanctioned by the regulatory bodies. And this is uh, necessary because currently when infantry trained physicians come to Canada, there is no way to get clinical practice. You come here and you cannot work as a doctor, and then they hold that against you. So they look for this recency of practice when they don't provide ways for you to get it. The longer that you go without clinical practices, the less, lesser and lesser that your chances become of actually getting into a licensure pathway when they never provided a way for you to get this recency of practice. And so if there was a, um, a clinical assistant position that you could immediately get into a hospital or get into a community setting and work alongside the fully licensed doctors, um, that would immediately, again, put skilled human resources into the health system to help along with giving them that recency of practice once it is official and approved by the bodies that need to approve it. And so these three solutions instantly work together hand in hand to help now and in the long term. They're both short-term and long-term solutions, and we've been telling them this. So you've listed these three solutions, you know, especially one of them, too few spots, seems like an easy fix. Why hasn't there been any movement or changes, do you think? Political will. (laughs) It's not anything else besides that. It's being willing to make the investment. All they need to do is make the investment um, and increase the positions. At the end of the day, it's the government that funds the positions, right? But you are funding Canadians. ITPs, infantry trained physicians, are Canadians. To get into a residency spot, you have to be a permanent resident or a citizen. And so this is not them funding some kind of foreigner, if you understand what I mean. Mm-hmm. We might have been trained internationally, but we're citizens or permanent residents of this country. And so you are funding your own people to, co- to contribute back to the system. Do you know how many people your organization has helped get accredited? Yeah, so we have only gone through one match cycle so far, um, because we're one year old and the match is one is once per year. And so we, last year we had approximately 22 matches, uh, which we're very proud of. <laughs> so that, but it's a very small number, right? But we're so proud of it because it's, you know, there are so many people who don't match. There are thousands of people who don't match every year. Mm-hmm. And we've had so much, so many thank yous, you know, people who have tried to match before us helping them and then they match this year and they, they will you know, really happy and thankful about it. So we're happy that we got those matches, but we know that it pales in comparison to the amount that don't match. Dr. McGuire-Brown, can I get your take on what you're hearing is happening these days? ICUs being shut down or ERs being shut down, um, departments being so shorthanded that doctors are being asked to do some of the nursing shifts. What do you think about what's going on right now? It's absolutely insane. I mean, it is just a situation that does not need to happen 
when you have doctors who are begging you to help. We are literally begging them to help and they're basically saying no because they're not making what needs to happen happen. And so and it hurts as a doctor to see all of it happening and you just feel hopeless and helpless and like you, you can't do anything. And it's so unnecessary. It does not need to happen. We um we have a, a survey report coming out soon which will show the areas of medicine that insanity trained physicians are trained in which will show insanity trained physicians um, willingness to relocate to areas of need, rural communities, northern communities, wherever. And I mean, they're just wasting this resource and there's no good reason why. And when you're a doctor, it's not just a job, it's a part of who you are. And to see them rip it away from us and to see patients suffering and we can't help, it's just, it's an insane situation and it's unbelievable because it really, it does not need to happen. What does the Canadian Medical Association or the Ontario Medical Association say to you and your organization? So we've tried to been in, we've tried to contact them and we've tried to sort of have conversations with them, but they're not very receptive to us. And I guess that's because to them as well, we're not doctors, right? We don't qualify for any of their membership positions. We don't, you know, we're not licensed in Canada. And so, again, another party in this, another stakeholder who's chosen to ignore us. We've sent them emails. We've called them and begged for meetings, and they don't listen. It's good to see, um, I think it was the um, Ontario uh, College of Family Physicians who recently put out a report that at least mentioned that in actually trained physicians um, should be a part of trying to restore the health system and, and get us out of this crisis. But to tell, if I um, if I was to tell you whether the OME or the CMA really acknowledge us, that would be no, they don't. Can you tell us a little bit about your own journey? Sure, yeah. So I came to Canada in 2017 and I am from Trinidad and Tobago and I practiced medicine there for four years, and I came here to get an anesthesia residency spot. That's why, that's why I came. And so when I came, I already passed my qualifying examinations, and I did not match. And every year since, I have not matched. And uh, it's very frustrating um, because I've done what I could do. I've done what... I've done what they say I need to do, you know. It's very frustrating when you check all of the boxes and they you still can't get through. And that's because it's not really about the boxes. <laughs> it's just that the system is dysfunctional. You can check all the boxes and just never, ever, ever um, get through. And so since then, I graduated in 2020 from Shulik School of Business with my MBA with this fiction. And I'm almost there on my PhD. <laughs> I just have to be, finish and defend my dissertation. Then I will be a double doctor. <laughs> That's amazing. Good luck with that. If our listeners want more information or to find out about that report that you suggest is coming out soon, where can they find it? So, I mean, you can always contact us. Our website is www.itpo.ca and um, our email is direct.itpo um, at gmail.com. And um, our report will be available by next week and we'll publish it on our website and we'll also send it out you know so like I can send you a copy and we'll be sending it out to different stakeholders who have requested it 
but we will also be publishing it on our website, so it will be publicly accessible. Dr. McKinney McGuire-Brown, Chair of Internationally Trained Physicians of Ontario, thank you for joining us on the feed. We appreciate your time and your story. Thank you very much. When we come back inside 911 Dispatch. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. Kevin Frankish is next with part two of his 911 series. This time we meet the dispatchers. Last week on the feed, we visited the 911 communication center at York Regional Police Headquarters in Aurora. We called them more than 600,000 times last year for help. This week, in part two, we meet some of the dispatchers as they share their thoughts and experiences with me. York Regional Police, 911. Do you need police, ambulance, or fire? So, but did, did this occur in the intersection or on the on-ramp, it's on the off-ramp itself? And go ahead with that, so that's November. All right. My name is Cachet. Hi, my name is Keegan. And my name is Helena. Hi, my name is Natasha. My name is Matthew. My name is also Natasha. All right, so let's meet some of the heroes of 911, shall we? Can they call you heroes? Does anybody get uncomfortable with being called the heroes? A little bit. A little bit. Why, why, do you, why do you get uncomfortable being called a hero? It's just, it's just not something I think of myself as. Well, you are, though. I mean, when, when people are calling for help, you're first. Yeah. Wow, they're humble. <laughs> what, what got, what's the best thing about being a 911? communicator uh, at the end of the day when you go home what's what's the best thing I would say the fact that I made a difference in our community um, helping others um, that's that uh, sense of satisfaction knowing that you know we did our best at the end of the day we can't control some of the calls that come into the center anybody have uh, I want a happy call you know I want a call that you went like yeah because we hear so much about shootings and fires and heart attacks and things like that, but it's not all doom and gloom, right? You're shaking your head. Is there, is there one, is there a happy call uh, you can remember? All the calls when either we help find people's lost dogs or um, someone's calling and they're having a baby. So we have some help sent how, that way. How many people here have been on the line while a baby is being delivered? <laughs> what was that like? Oh, it's exciting. Yeah, we usually have mums kind of panic, dads going crazy, <laughs> but they're always happy calls. Yeah, they're really exciting calls. Now, we should point out too that you're not alone. I mean, you've got uh, your paramedics on the line with you uh, as well, but it's still got to make you sweat. Of course. <laughs> yeah, it does because we always want to make sure everyone's safe, um, even though it is a happy call that we're going for, but safety is usually our primary concern. Oh, how cautious are you all about your mental health you know as far as just watching for signs and and realizing when it's time to sort of say whoa yeah i would say you were very cautious i mean we have a lot of support in the room and i've noticed that a lot of our co-workers will ask us if we're okay after we've taken a heavy call or they'll ask us if we want to take a walk or if you know that affected us in any way so um, yeah, and I think that YRP also does a great job at keeping our mental health priority by offering a lot of resources for us. 
Okay, so I'm I'm a new communicator. Okay, and I'm coming in here, and I'm like, I don't know if I can handle this. I, I don't know if I can handle this. What advice are you going to give me? And say, hey, Kat, you know what? Go. I would say lean on your coworkers. Um, the three of us here, we got hired together, um, and we all check on each other after we take heavy calls at the end of the day. Um, we always check in with our colleagues. That's the advice I give. All right, you have the air right now. What is the one thing that you want to tell people out there about calling 911? Is there something? Oh, okay. You already... <laughs> I have one. If you call 911 by accident, don't hang up. <laughs> Why? Why? Because they have to call you back every time. And um, although it's not an issue to call you back, it does take away from people who actually need the service. So I'd say don't hang up, don't panic. It's okay, you won't be in trouble. Just stay on the line, tell us everything's okay, and we can clear the call right then and there. Okay, what else? I would say just to make sure before you call 911 to think about, take that two seconds to think about why you're making that call. And if it's really an emergency, because there's a lot of calls that come through that are not emergencies, and unfortunately it's tying up the line. What else do you want people to know? When you're calling 911, just uh, know your location, because that's going to be one of the first questions that we ask, where are you? And that's especially true mm -hmm. on the highway, right? Mm -hmm. Because at least you're at home, you can say, yes, I'm at 123 Main Street. Mm -hmm. But it, you could be like, well, I, I, I don't know, I see a tree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what, kind, what, kind of, what kind of locations do you guys get sometimes that you just like, okay, I'm going to help you out here? Well, people will just randomly say oh i'm by the church yeah okay well, what church like you know they kind of assume that we know exactly where they are sometimes and that's not always true yeah or they'll say they're on one street when they're nowhere near that street like people people say they're on young street and you're like you're not you're on leslie you're on Bay, like baby like they'll they'll get like they'll usually know they're on north south street but they won't know which which north south street now uh, a lot of people get frustrated too when they call 911 okay so something traumatic is happening someone's having a heart attack and you're asking so many questions and all they want you to do is send an ambulance. Have you already sent that ambulance and, and, and why all the questions? Yeah, help has always started um, when you call. Um, we're just asking those questions to get better information for the responding units so mm -hmm. we can better prepare them to help you when they get there. How many people here have had, had actually helped someone over the phone before any units even arrive? Um, how many people have actually had to talk people through something? I would say me, yeah. yeah. Um, I had a particular situation where there was uh, the individual's um, significant other um, attempted to commit suicide. Mm -hmm. um, and it took us a while to get there, just be based on location, because the caller was uh, screaming, yelling, couldn't give me an address, so on and so forth. So uh, although it was myself and ambulance on the line, we, talking them through was a little bit difficult, but it was to calm them down, get the address, get the exact, exact location, how long this kind of happened. Um, and we were on the phone and we were on the phone up until the point, like myself and the uh, ambulance call taker on the phone until we arrived there. Somewhat um, of a successful story, although the person was hospitalized. Okay. This, this is why I called you guys heroes. Yeah, okay. Right. It's, it's because of this. Yeah. Um, and, and it's true. It, it, it really is true. Uh, and having worked in the media, we get, we're are there on scene with the cameras and we see your officers on scene. We don't see you. And so much of what you do is private and confidential, so we, we don't see that. So thank you uh, for what you do. Who is the youngest person here? 
Who's she he? Who All right, <laughs> you have to do me a favor. And I, sure. I don't know if you're even going to understand what this is. Okay. All right. So, so you 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 dispatch officers, right? Yeah. Well, oh. I'm a call taker. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, I want you to say after me, and then I want you to tell me what what you think it is. One out of twelve. One out of twelve. Sorry. What was that? <laughs> <laughs> one. One out of twelve. One out of twelve. Oh, okay. One item 12, one item 12. Respond for the 211 in progress. Respond for the 211 in progress. One item 12, respond code 4. One item one 12, respond code 4. All right, does anybody know what she did? What that one? Oh my gosh. Oh, your education has been sadly lacking. I need you because that was one place where I learned a, a, a respect. For call takers and, and dispatchers was a show called One Out of Twelve. One out of twelve, no one. Link six three, Ida four eight three. One out of twelve, four fifteen, fight group with chains and knives. Uh, and they showed a lot of behind the scenes and, and, and the call takers. So that's your homework for tonight is go watch <laughs> One Out of Twelve, okay? Thank you so much for this. For seniors, finding the right security system can be complicated. Tina Cortez with a safe space. Rose Catalano is an author and entrepreneur. She's also managing director at GEM Security Systems. Welcome to the feed, Rose. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So let's start with how did you start in the security industry? Way back in the late 80s, early 90s, there was a worldwide need for the security of people and premises. Uh, and this was a call becoming much more than having uh, like a perimeter alarm in place. And that held true whether it was a business, a residence, or of a personal nature. I saw opportunity. I saw potential for good things to come. Um, I saw an industry that was open for new operators, uh, but I also realized that uh, the industry didn't see too many females in the lead. At a time when security was 100% a male's territory, uh, for me to venture into this kind of business would more than likely make me an odd statistic. Um, but I, had, I was of the opinion that security was not gender selective. So I was prepared to take my chances, and I did. And what then does security specifically for seniors mean, and especially for those who are elderly and living alone? Yes. Um, generally speaking, security is not limited to business or commercial places. Today, a lot of seniors are choosing to spend their time at home being autonomous instead of moving into a retirement facility because they don't want to be away from their comfort zone. And, it, and it's hard uh, to let go of accumulated habits, especially at a time when change doesn't come easy. So for the seniors living alone at home, it's not uncommon to experience a little anxiety where security and safety are concerned. So uh, as much as I not aware of any setup that offers 100% safety arrangements. Security has certainly done its part to come up with product and services that keep the seniors safe without overstepping or chipping away at their dignity. So when I say a, a combination of 
systems and service. I mean, we can have guard call-in service where an operator calls the premises and asks the individual if they're okay, if they've taken their medication, have their meals. It's a, it's a service of a personal nature, and it differs a little bit from having cameras installed or just a medic alert. Now, when I say a guard call-in service, um, I want to I want to clarify that this is not to be confused with the guard being the first responder. And what it does when the, the guard calls in, if they detect any sign of crisis, they will then uh, follow the protocol and alert the proper responding agencies. Uh, we can also do guard patrols to make sure that the house is well lit, the house number is clearly visible. The guard can also do exterior patrol of the premises to make sure the driveway and walkways are obstacle-free. For instance, they can look and see that there are no folds in the exterior rugs or carpets. The handrails are firm and not broken. The steps and walkways are in good repair and free of leaves or snow. They can check to make sure that doors and windows are locked. A good surveillance system with the capability of remote viewing will give family members peace of mind. Install an alarm system that does much more than just uh, deter intruders. So these systems can be connected to smoke alarms, medic alerts, temperature sensors. These are all things that will help provide a safe and secure environment for the seniors. It sounds like finding the right security solution is very much an individual approach. Absolutely, it, it, it is. Now, beyond working in the security industry, you have written many self-empowering books. Tell us about your yes. latest book, It's Not My Fault. I just, uh, this book was published um, not so long ago. Um, and the reason for my writing this book was um, to explain why today we use, it, it's not my fault as an excuse or as a reason for not accepting responsibility. Um, I believe that people skirt responsibility for many reasons. Um, it all comes down to our understanding of proper values and ethics and how willing we are to abide by those virtues. Uh, uh, yeah, I um like if we have a good grasp on what is right and what is wrong and place accountability before entitlement, I think there's, there's hope uh, for better days ahead. Uh, we all have room to grow and be better for ourselves if we choose to do so. But we also have to keep in mind that change doesn't happen in a week or a month. It's a timeless commitment. And Rose, how do you juggle it all? How do you juggle your work at Gem Security, writing books, and your commitment to groups and organizations in your community? Well, you know, over the years, I've learned to set attainable goals for myself. I choose my battles carefully, and I avoid trying to resolve difficult situations when I have a foggy mind. Um, but sometimes I find it helpful to have conversations with uh, like-minded people and I draw positive energy from completed tasks. Now, mind you, not all the tasks turn out the way I plan, but I also learn a lesson from the ones that are very successful. Um, other times when I find that things pile up a bit too high, 
It's just a case of doing some venting out loud. It doesn't resolve anything, but the load feels a lot lighter. And Rose, if our listeners want to learn more about you or Security for Seniors or find your books, how can they connect? They can look me up at www.rosecatalano.com or www.gemsecurity.ca. Terrific. Thanks for joining us on the feed, Rose. We appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Our Jim Lang is next with redefining what skilled trades really means. 3M Canada is a world leader in manufacturing and supply chain. And to talk more about it and uh, how we come out of it post-pandemic and move forward and improve things, thrilled to be speaking to Terry Bowman from 3M Canada. Uh, Terry, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, Excited to be here and excited to talk about something uh, so important to 3M and really uh, Canadians uh, from coast to coast. And 3M, to that end, has done in-depth, extensive research uh, and found out it's really hard for organizations such as provincial governments and Skills Ontario to encourage young people in skilled trades. And even though that we know that people in skilled trades make a very healthy living, why is this so, Terry? Yeah, so every year, 3M conducts a survey. And we conduct it in many of the countries that we operate in. We're a global company uh, in about 80 different countries. But we, we do it in Canada as well, and we call it the State of Science Index. Um, we like acronyms. 3M is an acronym. Yeah. Um, so the State of Science Index, or SOCI, it's a survey that explores attitudes uh, uh, towards um, science, how people think about science, how people think about careers in science. And still, trades is an important part of, um, of this. When I say science, it's STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. And skilled trades is either part of STEM or it's an adjacent to STEM that's very important. And the survey we did, it was interesting this year. It, it highlighted that while a huge percentage of Canadians think that skilled trades is important, it was like 96%. Hmm. I, don't know if any, I don't know if anything gets that type of uh, agreement in Canada. But even though 96% of people thought it was important, only 25% thought it was something that they would themselves would pursue or would encourage their their children or or the youth of Canada to pursue. So that's the gap that we saw uh, from the survey, uh, recognition of importance compared to not a hugely uh, high rate of adoption of this as a career path. Well, Terry, I mean, to be a carpenter or an electrician in a lot of other countries, as you know from 3M's global footprint, is is a point of pride. Uh, Where is the disconnect in Canada when you have that 96% percentile about the need for the workers and such a low percentile of people actually willing to go into it. You know, I'm, I'm also a parent of, uh, of, of three boys, and, and I think about my own thoughts as, you know, as, as we worked with them on developing an education path. And I admit we had a bias towards traditional four-year university degree, and we're, and we're not as supportive towards the education, um, whether it's college or skilled trade school. Um, that would that would allow someone to pursue a skilled trades career. So some of it, I think, comes from parents. Uh, it might come from um, the youth themselves who somehow believe that a university-enabled career somehow is more prestigious or preferred to a um, skilled trades career. Something is driving that gap, and it's and it's not financial. Skilled trades is a very lucrative career path that uh, that pays exceptionally well. 
it's also a it's an interesting career path. You know, virtually every day is different from the day before. It must be so rewarding knowing that you're fixing things that either let a factory run better, a hospital run better, uh, really improving lives, uh, you know, every day. Yet somehow there is this big gap that needs to be addressed. And Terry, before we get to the next point, I'm glad you brought that last point up because my wife and I, and my wife, I'll admit, is even more skilled than I am at fixing things. We're finding more and more people we know have to hire for everything, don't know how to fix anything. We have a whole generation of people that other than a light bulb can't do anything around their house. That's that's not good. No, it's not. And, uh, you know, I, I, I laugh at myself sometimes because here I am, um, three in Canada, manufacturing and supply chain leader, but I'm not an engineer. And my, my wife says I have um, very few skills around, <laughs> around the house. Um, I think a lot of us are in that same boat. Yeah, no, I mean, I can carry things and dig holes, but after you get to a certain point, my wife says, put the power tool down. Uh, thrilled to be speaking to Terry Bowman from 3A Canada. So 3M, because of the work you do and the in-depth research and everything, how does 3M go about changing the perceptions that we have in this country about skilled trades, as you alluded to, pay so well? Yeah, so part of this, you know, I think everyone has a role to play in trying to boost the profile of a skilled trades career, whether it's highlighting the fact that it is it is lucrative. It, it, it's a, it, these are good paying jobs, but as an employer, we have a responsibility to to highlight the employment opportunities that come and the and the variety of work that uh, is available to a skilled tradesperson. I think that we also have a responsibility to work with the schools themselves to to make them aware of of the changing skills and technologies that uh, are in a plant or in a manufacturing environment. So that curriculums can be keep up with the with the pace of change in industry, and while I'm a manufacturing person, um, I think the same need for partnership between employers and schools would apply to other facets of of the of the economy. Um, you know, industry partnering with education to keep the curriculum relevant and and exciting. Well, it's a great point. Um, I mean, you think about your average car now you buy, you can't do anything but put windshield wiper fluid in. It's so complicated, and being a Class A mechanic is such a skill that the average person can't touch their own car anymore. No. no so if I can just talk about some specifics. Absolutely, can, please, yes. Um, so, um, so we have a partnership with a group called Skills Ontario. Uh, this is an organization that promotes skilled trades. You know, so we work... We work with them to help, whether it's funding or or equipment donation or product donation, um, you know, to help them outreach to potential um, youth or, or other people who are or who are interested in, in gaining uh, skilled trades education. We, we're looking at how do we um, how do we extend STEM and skilled up uh, skilled trade opportunities to underrepresented individuals. You know, there, there are there are groups of Canadians who. Who, for, for for various circumstances, do not have the same access to this education as others. This is really an untapped labor pool or potential labor pool that we want to help um, get the education, get the experience, and really have the opportunity to to better themselves uh, through skilled trades. 3M funds um, STEM talk workshops, and we have an advocacy fund also aimed towards the underrepresented groups. Again, it's to try and find more people. Uh, to to make them aware um, and uh, be, and uh, able to access some of this education, and by access, 
it might mean funding or other mechanisms that would allow um, participation or attendance at a, at a school. And then there's smaller things that we do. You know, in our plants, and we have eight plants across Canada, we'll have high school students in who, who are curious about skilled trades come into the plant to talk to our maintenance personnel, our skilled trades personnel. We also will meet with our engineering group. Because some people are trying to decide, should I do a skilled trades career or an engineering career? But a lot of times they're having to make that decision without actually having talked to somebody. Hmm. So we open ourselves up to allow people to um, to learn about the various career paths and, and make a more informed decision for themselves. Well, Terry, I applaud you and 3M for doing that because to me that's where it all starts in high school, high school students. And I know, you know, let's face it, teachers and administrators, they're university grads. They wouldn't be in the school system. But it is important to have people like 3M and the skilled trades and, and your initiatives with STEM to tell the kids, hey, there's another path and this is what it's like. And, and if they see it, and have that tangible, almost feel it and taste it like, oh, hey, I'd like to do this. You know, and, and skilled trades, is, I think everyone probably has a different imagination of what a skilled trade is. You, you might imagine the plumber who came to fix uh, a problem in your home. That is a skilled trade. But there's also skilled trades of being an aeronautic um, maintenance personnel working at a, at a plane manufacturer. It is such a wide breadth of, of, um, of opportunities and, and, and work. And maybe some of us think more towards what we experience in our personal lives and not to what, not what's happening more professionally and, and big in, in, in industry. And if people were able to see some of that more um, higher-end type of skilled trades, and not to say that plumbing is not higher-end, but there's more to it than what we see of the people who come to fix problems in our houses. Uh, it's a point very well made. Uh, Terry Bowman, 3M Canada, thank you so much for doing this. It's the kind of uh, planting the seeds now that will reap uh, benefits for this country for years to come, your initiatives and your company's initiatives to get more people opening their eyes to the possibility of all the different avenues when it comes to skilled trades. So uh, I applaud you. Thank you so much. And if people are listening, and is there a website they can go to if they want more information for their family? Yeah, if they were to go to 3M.com, um, um, or 3M.ca, um, they will be able to um, to find our our STEM um, uh, workshop information. Perfect. 3M.ca or 3M.com. Get more details about 3M's STEM workshop. Uh, Terry Bowman, thank you so much for doing this. A great success and uh, well done. Well, thank you very much, and thanks for uh, allowing to me allowing me to speak on something so important to Canada. Coming up next, access by Tay. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Dining out with a disability can be challenging. Shaliza Bacchus introduces us to a social media phenom who goes beyond the menu. We all love food, but for those with disabilities or those who are differently abled than the average person, simply going to a restaurant can be challenging. This Toronto-based TikToker is trying to make a change by completely opening our eyes to those challenges. I'm joined by Taylor Lindsay Knoll, or maybe I should just call you Access by Tay because I'm sure that's what most people know you by. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of people actually, the day somebody yelled at, oh my God, Access by Tay. And I was like, <laughs> 
that works. You know, it's so funny. When we were uh, looking to reach out to you, I was like, yeah, I know this girl. I see her on TikTok all the time. I'm hearing that more and more. And although I know I'm posting on a very public platform, it still surprises me when people say that they've seen videos, <laughs> which I, I probably should get used to at this point. Exactly. You're kind of famous now. You're kind of a big deal now. That is that is very kind. But I think that's the thing that we often like don't think about when we're posting online and things. Like the reach is actually quite grand. I mean, you were recognized by the Toronto Star and other media outlets as well. Yes. Even though I had a video that got almost 2 million views, I'm like, oh, but that's the internet, you know? And then when the star reached out, I was like, okay, this is real. Like my grandma is going to see this. Um, <laughs> so as soon as you know your grandma gets involved, totally different thing. I know. Then you know it's a big deal. Because I mean, it doesn't matter if you've got a million views on TikTok. If your grandma's talking about it, that's the real validation, right? Absolutely. She's very proud of us. Okay, Taylor, if uh, people don't know this, you are quadriplegic and you love to eat just like everybody else, but you've encountered some challenges searching for restaurants to eat at. Absolutely. I have been in a wheelchair for the last 14 years. And even though I wasn't born this way, I still love to be active and go out and social. And my friend group is very good for that. But we have definitely encountered over the years countless times where we would go somewhere be really excited to go and then have a really bad experience because it wasn't wheelchair accessible. And that's that's so disappointing. I find that absolutely ridiculous. Like you are a public space. You're supposed to be inclusive to all people. Like how hard is it to just have wheelchair ramps and things like that? I, I still to this day am very shocked when I show up to places that I will never show up to somewhere where it says it's not accessible. That's not what I'm doing with my videos, I always check before leaving because one, I don't want to waste my time. Mm -hmm. And two, it's just a part of what I have to do as someone in a wheelchair. And so when they say they are and you get there and the expectations are not met, it is extremely disappointing and oftentimes can be just really draining mentally as well. Yes, I can only imagine. I mean, you're looking forward to it. I'm sure, you know, you do what all of us do. You look up the menu beforehand and you're like, great, I can actually get in there with my wheelchair. This is what I want to order. And then you get there and it's such a big letdown. And I can't even imagine how that would make you feel. Yeah, it's quite devastating. And when you already feel like you don't quote unquote fit in with society at times, it makes you feel like you're standing out like a sore thumb because everybody's watching when you can't get in the door or when you get in or try to go to the washroom and then you realize it's downstairs in the basement and it's a whole thing. You got to leave to go out to another restaurant to see the washroom. It's just, it's a mess. Oh, that, that hurt my heart. But uh, let's, let's keep it light. Let's keep it a lot lighter. You have got over yeah. 17,000 followers on TikTok. So what inspired you to start making videos in regards to this issue in the first place? It honestly came out of a, a, a deal with my friends. We were, uh, we have a, like I said, we are very social people and my friends have been getting married, which is amazing. And I'm part of the bridal party, but they kept showing up to wedding venues and realizing, although they say they're accessible, they're not. And my friends have a very different perspective on accessibility because of me. Mm-hmm. And so they are more in tune with what actually works and what doesn't. And so we all kind of just brainstormed that we should document this and really show it. And because I actually have another job, I have a whole other career. I own a business called Cup of Tea. I don't have really good work-life balance. And so this is forcing me to get out while also making good videos for 
the content that I wanted to create. So it's like a win-win all over. I love that. And what was like the first video that like blew up? The first video was this video I did. Uh, I think it was my fourth video, the Shameful Tiki Room. Um, that's the name of the restaurant because I don't want people to think I'm calling it that. <laughs> the restaurant name is actually The Shameful Tiki Room. And I showed up. I planned a surprise birthday and I saw online that they had like, all these cool drinks and atmosphere. And I thought it would just be such a cool place to take my friend for her birthday. Um, and when I got there, it was not accessible. They had stepped into the bathroom. The staff weren't very kind. And it was a disaster. We had to leave and pay for more transportation to go to another restaurant. And I think when I posted it, you know, the audience obviously very, like, resonated it in a way that I had no idea. That is a message that you definitely want to get across. You know what I mean? So I'm not surprised that video blew up. I have seen that video on my feed myself. And, you know, it really gets you thinking. You're like, this is kind of ridiculous. This is absolutely ridiculous. Yes. I, in 2022, you know, you think that things would be different and people would be more mindful. And not everywhere can be accessible. There are also historic buildings where we have laws about accessibility and things like that. But it's just really disappointing when places advertise to be so maybe for show. And then, but it has real world consequences for the people who actually need that information to be accurate, like people saw in my video. Mm -hmm. And over the course of you making videos and through your journey and things like that, have you found that you're finding more accessible places or are people more open to trying to make it accessible for you? Well, I think there's definitely uh, an error of urgency in the air because, you know, by 2025, according to the AODA, public places are supposed to all be accessible. Of course, there are exceptions with historic buildings, but so there is going to be a shift. Um, but how quickly that happens, I'm not quite sure. And I know a lot of newer builds are really great for that, but uh, there are still a lot, a lot of work to be done. Yes. And can you elaborate on that? What you think uh, restaurants should do that maybe aren't accessible right now? Do you think there's a way they could let people know that? Oh, absolutely. The first and foremost is the best thing that I always tell restaurants, claim your listings on Yelp and places like Yelp and OpenTable and Google. Make sure that that information is accurate because we live in a day and age where people will Google something before they go. The second thing we can do is that if they are able to make changes right now, portable ramps are extremely, extremely inexpensive for a restaurant. They can cost between two to five hundred dollars, and sometimes you can even get a grant to get them for free. So it's like there really is no excuse why places with one step or even two steps can't get a ramp, which provides access to spaces that other people wouldn't be able to. Yeah. And the thing I love most about your page is that you are really raising awareness for things that a lot of people take for granted. A lot of people don't realize. So I love that this conversation is being had. I love that all of these people are watching your videos. So if everyone wants to follow you and watch your videos, where can we find you? On all social platforms, but especially TikTok and Instagram at Access by Tay. Um, that is my username. That is my hashtag that I hashtag all the time. And you'll be easily able to find all of my videos and will be not only, I'm not only reviewing restaurants, but I'm starting to sit into experiences and very soon travel as well. So lots of stuff on there. 
Amazing. All right. I will link that on our social media pages as well at 105.9 The Region. But Taylor Lindsay Noel, aka Access by Tay, thank you so much for joining me and I wish you the best of luck on your journey. No, thank you. I really appreciate you allowing me to share my story. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.